Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. We were in living Islam with purpose of Dr. Omar Farooq Abdullah. Hafidahullah wa nafanallahu bih. Living Islam with purpose and we're in the second operational principle. So as a quick overview for anyone who was not here last time. Basically what, um, what he says is that this paper, basically what Dr. Omar says is that um, is that Islam is vast and in order to build a framework that helps us to develop an understanding of Islam that will enable us to engage with the country that we live in or wherever that might be, but especially for Muslims in America then it will be beneficial to provide an operative framework for doing so and so he gives five principles for developing that framework. Um, and last time we covered the first of them. So those five principles are trusting reason, respecting dissent, stressing societal obligations, setting priorities, and embracing maxims. Uh, as, as we said before also with Dr. Omar's papers, you can find it online. I suggest that you find it and read along and read it on your own and reflect upon it and so on. It's just this one is called Living Islam with Purpose. So if you search for, you know, Living Islam with Purpose, Omar Farooq Abdullah or Omar Abdullah or anything along those lines, PDF, it should pop up. I like the one that's on the Oasis Initiative website versus the one that's on the Taba Foundation website. It's just an editorial preference. I prefer the two-column one. I find it easier to read than the one full-page one. Operational principle number two is respecting dissent. Respecting dissent. You know one of the things that's amazing about Islam when you study it? It's just it's similar to studying the Qur'an. You know, when you study the Qur'an, no matter what you're going through, you feel like it's speaking to your situation. Right? That's, that's just how it is. If you like sincerely open the Quran and read it, you feel like it's speaking to your situation. When you study Islam, if you if you just you're like okay, you pick up wherever you left off, and you realize that it's speaking it's speaking to whatever is going on, and uh, it's just it's very interesting. Operational principle number two: respecting dissent. Islam only speaks with a monolithic voice on foundational beliefs and practices. In other matters, it speaks with multiple voices and recognizes the legitimacy of dissent and competing interpretations. Although Islamic history has had periods of greater and lesser toleration, acknowledgement of divergent opinions is a central part of its heritage. Muslim scholars were trained in the protocol of dissent, adab al-ikhtilaf, which enabled them, for the most part, to benefit from opposing view, opposing points of view and live civilly with those who held them. This is, that's, that second part is the major issue, by the way. Yeah, these, these two things are connected. How do how is it possible that you can develop a? I mean, we have a different civilizational trajectory than the West, right? We're influenced by the civilizational trajectory of the West. The civilizational trajectory of the West is, if you differ with someone on religious beliefs, you have to kill them. That's that's basically the consequence, right? Like you're gonna if you if you don't have to, you're gonna end up there. That's that's where things went. That's why you have. You know, the Protestant Catholic Wars, you have all these things that happen in Europe, you have America, you have the Americas, and everything that happened here, 
A lot of it is premised on this issue. Yes, in Muslim history, we have times when people from different groups fought each other. But that wasn't like... There's also a whole lot of differing on some really serious things where people still lived with each other. And so that idea of like being able to differ and still exist, being able to differ and still coexist is really, really important. And that's a... a it should be something that we seek in our civilizational outlook. Um, so this whole learning the limits of difference and how to differ and so on is actually really important and people who say that like oh no you're just like edib policing everything you can't let anyone speak and so on and so forth no one's telling you you can't speak I'm just telling you don't be rude because none of us can speak if everyone's rude and we're not going to get anywhere is it you hold whatever opinion you want just like don't be such a jerk about it um and this is, of course, as always, never about anyone in the room. Like, I, I don't, I, I try not to subtweet in my lectures. You know, like subliminally send messages to people and stuff. It's just the general point. Uh, this is why Dr. Jackson actually, the first like major thing that he was going to write after his PhD stuff and everything was Islam and the Black American. And uh, Islam and the Black American, by the way, is obligatory reading for Muslims in America who care about Islam in America. If you don't care about Islam in America, you know, it's your own business, whatever. You don't have to read anything, really. <laughs> Just live your life, and inshallah, Allah forgive us, and we die, and we meet him. But if you care about Islam in America, then you have to read Dr. Jackson's Islam and the Black American. It's really important. So what happened was he started to write Islam and the Black American, and he was, like, you know, going through it and stuff. And then he realized we don't really, like, know how to have a conversation <laughs> as a people. And if I write this book, it's just going to be chaos. So he went back. He paused that whole project. And he went back and he translated Imam al-Ghazali's Faisal al-Tafriqa that he, that he called, uh, well, what is it called? On the Boundaries of Theological Difference. He called it On the Boundaries of Theological Difference. And he wrote like a big introduction to it. And then he translated Imam al-Ghazali's work. And this was like his contribution to say, okay, this is where we can start. And then after we agree on these foundations of how to engage with each other and difference of opinion and so on and so forth, then like let's talk about Islam and the Black American, right? Uh, didn't really happen. There was like a little period. You know, it happens a lot with people like Dr. Jackson, where everybody wants to talk about their ideas, but nobody wants to read their work. It's basically the way that it goes, you know. <laughs> so like everyone's arguing back and forth about like indigenous Muslims versus immigrant Muslims and stuff, and like nobody's actually read the book. Nobody actually listened to what he said. Nobody actually, you know, it's just, we're just going to like pick up on a couple words and argue over it. I mean, read the book. You probably wouldn't be arguing anymore. You'd understand exactly what he meant and you move on with life. So it's a, they're both really important books. Actually, as I always say, all of Dr. Jackson's works are really important. You know, um, after Islam and the Black American, then he wrote Islam and the, pro and, and the Problem of Black Suffering, which is uh, basically an application of the different schools of Islamic theology to the question of the problem of evil. How would we look at that in the context of black suffering? So it's like really great book. Um, then what did he do? He did that uh, initiative to stop the violence, which was a really interesting one. It was super cheap on Amazon one time. Someone sent me the thing and we got it. But like I think usually it's expensive. But basically what he did was he had all these extremist stuff going on. He found the What's her name in Egypt? The extremists in Egypt that were Jama'a Islamiyah, the ones who tried assassinated uh, 
uh, which one did they kill? Abdul Nasser or Sadat? Sadat, right? On the Manasa. <laughs> you drive by it all the time, right? In Medina Nasr. Um, basically, they were that, that was their position. And then after long, long time in prison and a lot of internal discourse and study and so on and so forth, they changed their position and they wrote multiple papers on why their extremist position before was wrong according to the Sharia. So he found all of those and he translated all of them and wrote like a big introduction to it and it was like this, you know, response to extremism from the inside instead of from the outside, which is really, you know, remarkable work. Again, most people didn't pay attention to it, but it's an interesting read. Um, he did a Sufism for non-Sufis, the translation of Ibn Al-Ta'ana's Tajun Urus. Uh, really good stuff, mashallah. Anyways. Respect for dissent is a natural element in healthy societies. It is essential to human dignity and intellectual development. It nurtures a culture of tolerance that allows for openness to new ways of thinking and to other communities with different worldviews. If you can't talk to each other, how can you advance in your thought? You can't actually refine the way that you think and the perspectives that you hold if you can't talk to people. Right? And this is, I think, one of our big problems culturally right now. Um, it nurtures, I said that, historically Islam's receptivity to novel and often conflicting ideas was an integral part of its cultural and intellectual success. This respect for dissent lay at the foundation of the religion's capacity to foster an international discourse of ideas. It enabled Muslims to become heirs to the great intellectual legacies of the past. Okay, the right of dissent and the requirement to respect it are anchored in the manner in which Muslim scholarship approached scriptural interpretation. So now he's going to give you like, how does this, how did we end up with this culture, right? How do we end up with a culture that respects all these differences and things? It's because of the way that one engages with the text and what that means. What's the consequence of engaging with the text in that way? Scholars agree that religious texts have different degrees of conclusiveness and often convey multiple meanings. Islamic scholarship divided religious texts into two categories. Those which are categorically authoritative, qati'i, and those which are presumptively authoritative, dhanni. Which is to say what? It's to say one of them is categorical. There's no conversation on what it means, there's no conversation on how it came to us, which is going to come next. Right? And the other one is, it's a dhanni, which doesn't mean that it's rejected, it just means that we can't we we believe in it but not with the same level of surety as the one that's categorical okay this will become more clear and this is going to be applied then just to give you a insight to what he's going to say right now it's going to be applied to how the text reaches us as well as what the text means because those are the two questions right i mean those are two questions can i rely on the text how did it reach me can i rely on it and what does it mean so in the end, where people have, they care about the text, right? To be categorically authoritative, a religious text must pass two tests. The first pertains to authenticity of transmission. The second pertains to the number of meanings it conveys. Okay? In Islamic scholarship, the entirety of the Qur'an is categorically authentic. Uh, in its transmission. Hadith, on the other hand, have different levels of verifiable authenticity. So this is, and now we're talking about, in transmission. Transmission. Uh, thus, the issue of textual authenticity applies in reality only to hadith. So, the inter the the transmission question only really applies to hadith. The Quran is the Quran. We're not going to sit and argue like if it's in the Quran, did Allah really say it or not? 
If it's in the Quran, Allah said it. We can argue over what it means, but He said it. When it comes to the Hadith, we argue over not only what it means, but we argue over whether or not He said it, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, for the most part. There's a small number of hadith that are transmitted to us in the same way that the Qur'an was transmitted. Those ones we don't argue over whether or not he said it. But for the most part, there's a debate on both of them. That's why we have the science of hadith authentication. Thus, the issue of textual authenticity applies in reality only to hadith. Those hadith that meet the highest standards of verification and hadith al-sahihah are categorically authentic from the standpoint of transmission, although they are not necessarily categorically authoritative from the standpoint of meaning. Is this making sense? Are you guys understanding this? Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you want me to skip all of his explanation? It's good if I read his and tell you. And then afterwards, I'll, I'll review it if it needs to be reviewed. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Sallu Hadith with lesser degrees of verifiability and hadith and hasana or da'ifa are presumptively authentic as regards transmission. Uh, they they may provide legitimate support supporting evidence, but cannot constitute conclusive proof in isolation, no matter how clear their meanings may appear. So, I mean, so so hasan can't be used as a proof of itself. Is that what he's saying? Yeah, ani. That's not agreed upon, no. That's what he's saying, but it's not agreed upon. I mean, generally speaking, they'll say that if it's hasan or it's sahih, then you can use it. And if it's da'if, then you can't really like fully establish things by it. Although, you could, in theory, if there's nothing else that speaks on the issue. But some of the madhabs differ on that. <laughs> We're getting, the water's getting deeper. Keep going, it's going deeper and deeper and deeper. So, the <laughs> question is, if you, ha- you you don't have, say there's like some topic. I wish I knew it off the top of my head. I probably did nine years ago, but I don't right now. Um, there's some topic, and you don't have any reliable hadith in this topic. There's no Quran verse that speaks about it. There's no reliable hadith verse, hadith on it. The only hadith you have on it are daif. They're weak. They're considered to be weak. Well, there's debate on it. <laughs> there's debate on its authenticity. But, but uh, you know, the, for example, you know, that kind of thing. Then do you take, the question becomes, do you then in those kind of cases go with the hadith? Or do you go with the, what would be concluded from the general principles of the sharia based on the body of other evidences? It depends on the school. Because I know a brother who wrote a whole dissertation about how Imam Ahmed was down with using weak hadith mm-hmm. to to justify like things that weren't covered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's in the usul of the Hanbali school. So the schools will differ on it. I mean, the, the to give you the other side of it, the Hanafi school will prefer the the indication of the general. Principles of the Sharia over even an authentic hadith in certain circumstances. So it's like the other side of it, you know. Um, these things are actually important. They don't sound important, but they're actually for some people they're actually important because, like, we have a thing in, in the Muslim community, for example, where you know you have a thing now for this whole should we trust hadith or not? You know, as if like nobody's talked about that before. <laughs> Nobody was worried about the authenticity of hadith. All these years, everyone was just like, we'll just take whatever said, you know. Of course, this is huge. This is like one of the biggest areas of, of 
conversation in all of Muslim thought is the question of how I'm going to deal with the hadith. I mean, that's why you have the whole body of literature. You have the hadith sciences. You have Ilm al-Rijal that talks about the biographies of the narrators. You have all. I mean, it's a huge field. But you know, even even still, and then there's questions of like the hadith scholars say one thing, but how did the fiqh scholars use it? Which is a whole different question, because the, the technical analysis of the hadith is more of an issue of just grading the hadith. It's not you haven't answered the question of what you're going to make of it. That's a, that's a different issue because that's all transmission. The indication is a different question. So even in the realm of indication, people are like, no, we use these weak hadith and we use this hadith and that. Hadith. Who cares if they said it's authentic? And, but we don't have no idea even what that means. Inshallah, we'll do it sometime. I have a seminar from the past on uh, on like the the history and of hadith methodology and uh, interpretation and stuff. Inshallah, we'll do it sometime. I think I still have the notes, but uh, it's a it's a big topic. But the point why I'm saying that is because the Hanafis, for example, the Hanafis a hadith can be authentic and they still won't act upon it. So it's not like just as simple as what is the grading of the hadith. Just because the hadith was authentic doesn't mean that we necessarily make a conclusion of it or we do anything about it. And that's not out of rejecting the hadith. That's out of weighing the entire body of evidences. and Because that's fiqh. Fiqh is not like, what's, a, what's one hadith say? Fiqh is, I weigh the entire body of evidences, Qur'an, all the verses in the Qur'an, all of the hadith, the interpretations of the companions on those hadith. Like one of the, one of the conditions that the Hanafis have is that they won't act upon an authentic hadith if the person who narrated it acted in a way that's different than the clear indication of the hadith. Right? Makes sense. Which makes sense. Yeah. But like, who's going to do that research? <laughs> They're just going to find one hadith and like roll with it. But if you live in the generations of people that like that's what they were doing, then you know. Like you're, you're Abu Hanifa, you're a tabi. As people forget this. Abu Hanifa exists before Bukhari, before Muslim, before any of the collections of hadith. All of them did actually. Abu Hanifa, Shafi'i, the Bukhari, Muslim come after them, right? So they have like different ways of dealing with hadith and stuff. Anyways, huge topic. I shouldn't have opened it. The point is here. We're gonna skip this whole uh, th these couple paragraphs. The point is this: very simple. We take our religion from text. We have two major types of text that are the absolute most foundational to us, which is the Quran and the hadith. Every single text, if we're trying to deal with it in the matters of religion and in the matters of real life, every single text has two questions. First question is the question of the reliability of the transmission. All right? Reliability of the transmission. Is, it, is what's being told to me actually true? So someone comes to you and they say, oh, so-and-so said this. Okay. Like, how much do I really trust that you're telling me correctly what so-and-so said? And actually, like, in everyday life, this is a good practice. Probably everyone already does it subconsciously. You don't think about it. People in your head, they're different levels of hadith narrators in your life. <laughs> Some people, you reject their hadith as soon as you hear it. Some people, when they say it, you accept it. Some people, you're like, I don't know. It needs supporting evidence. Some people, you're like, this is probably generally correct, but they tend to miss some of the details. Like, you have your own hadith categorization system in your head. It's probably very similar to this, the science that they actually laid out. <laughs> you know, it just hasn't been codified. So, this is the question number one is the transmission. Question number two is, what does it mean? So, what verses of the Qur'an that are less clear? Hmm. 
those aren't as authoritative as those so that are very clear. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. But but transmission wise, they're the equal. Transmission wise, they're equal. Yeah. So now when we look at the Quran, everything in the transmission of the Quran is categorical. It's all from Allah. If it's in the Quran, it's from Allah. We have no doubt about it because we know the method by which it reached us. And we know that that method was without any doubt. Too many people said the same thing in so many different places without any, basically, without any possibility that they would have colluded in order to make it out. It's just, it's, it's, not, it's not logically feasible. So that's what it, what it means. It's, it came to us with tawatur. So many people in so many generations, so many places, not possible that they made it up. So we believe that it's absolutely true in its transmission. The second question is, what does the verse actually mean? What does the verse actually mean? Which, as people can probably understand, is going to, uh, in most cases, lend to some sort of interpretation. Some things don't lend to any sort of interpretation, right? Like, so, numbers... For example, they say in like the, the theory of it, a number doesn't really lend to interpretation. If the verse says five, it's five. If the verse says it's half, it's half. There's not, you can't be like, well, half of half is half. And no, if it's half, it's half, right? <laughs> so there's other things that are not really clear. And the, the common example that's, uh, that's always used in this, in, in this topic is the verse about wudu. That Allah tells us how to make wudu in the Quran, and then it comes to the part about the head, and it says, "Wamsahu biruusikum, wamsahu biruusikum, wipe your heads." And it just so happens that that ba right before your heads has a lot of meanings in the Arabic language, a number of meanings. Ba it can be sababiya, it can be the tabeid, it can be ziada, it can be it can be like all these different things. So then, how do you can you say then? So you think, like, based on the context and everything else, that the bat here actually just means that you have to wipe your whole head. Okay, fine. Malik agreed with you and Ahmed agreed with you. You look at it and you say, no, it actually means... It actually could mean a number of different things, so we can't conclude it from the verse. We need to look at the sunnah. And the sunnah shows us that the Prophet ﷺ never wiped anything less than one-fourth of his head. So then you're like, okay, I'm going to go then that this bat, it means one-fourth. It means part, and that part is one-fourth based on the, the evidence from the sunnah. Okay, Abu Hanifa agreed with you. And then someone else is going to come and say, well, no, I think the bat, it just means part of your hair, part of your head. So that means if you just even wipe a part of one hair, then that counts as wiping your head. I'd be like, okay, Imam Shafi agrees with you. Can you say any of them without a doubt are absolutely the correct position? No, you can't. Because the verse lends to multiple interpretations. So you just, there's nothing you can do about it, right? So in, inevitably, this is why inevitably you have to respect it. So you have to have, re- either you throw out the text or you respect the difference of opinion. There's not a whole lot more else you can do with it, right? The second side of it then is the hadith, which is the same issue. Hadith is the same issue, except now in the transmission you have a lot of debate. Whereas in the Quran, you don't have any debate in the transmission. In the hadith, you have debate in the transmission and you have debate in the meaning. Although oftentimes the debate in the meaning is less in the hadith than it is in the Qur'an. Because the Qur'an by its nature is more general. It's not as specific. Whereas the hadith is more specific by its nature because of just you know where it's coming from and so on. So how, can, so how and when then can you say absolutely without a doubt that something is part of the religion and you can't argue it? 
it has to be both categorically transmitted and categorically understood. Without that, you can't say it. Everything else is realm of realm of valid disagreement. So now you have all of the development of Islamic law. Belief in God's oneness, the last judgment, and the prohibition of murder are based on categorically authoritative, ta authoritative texts. Right? They constitute primary foundations of the Islamic religion and are universally binding on all Muslims. Whether or not the Garden of Paradise comprises four or sevenly heavenly domains is a question based on presumptive authoritative text, as are questions about whether God sent 124,000, 224,000, or some other undetermined number of prophets. These are all in texts that we're not like, we can't be 100 about them. Right? We, we believe in them, but you know, there's, they're strong enough that we can believe in them. They're just not strong enough that we can say with absolute certainty, which is a very, very important distinction. Uh, beliefs and practices based on presumptively authoritative text may be said to have secondary status. They cannot constitute the foundational beliefs and practices that all Muslims are obliged to accept. Nevertheless, these secondary beliefs and practices are of vital importance in Islam and are not to be regarded as tentative or untrue. It's, it's not that they're tentative, right? Like when we say that a hadith is sahih, it's not really something that you're going to doubt, right? It's it's just because it's sahih doesn't mean like, oh, it could be true, it could not be true. It went through a lot for it to be considered sahih, right? Like the, the narrator had to be upright. Every single narrator in the chain had to be upright. Every single one of them had to be strong in their memory. There had to be nothing in the hadith that indicates that it has a hidden defect. It has to not go against anything else that's stronger than it. The chain of narration has to be complete. So that's all of that is required for it to be sahih. If any of those things are gone, we just make it, it becomes weak. Except for the memory one, if the memory is so-so and not bad, it can become hasan instead of daif. But like it's not a small thing to become sahih. But even still, unless it's transmitted, with multiple la multiple so many layers of transmission that we can't believe that it was made up it's still not 100% it's like 98 99 97 right which is important because you might see a hadith sometime and you're like well everyone said that this hadith is authentic but i really can't swallow this one it's like really hard for me to make sense of it's really hard for me to understand i don't really know about it like doesn't necessarily have to be the I mean you don't have to reject it but you can have like some sort of I don't know you know especially for because you're not going to generally find those things and things that are foundational issues of the religion they're not it's going to be a side issue anyways so side issues, right? okay move on but usually in most cases those things that are like mm, I don't know usually there's some debate on their authenticity anyways for the most part um, so Yes. Um, so does that change with the? I find as the, the values of society changes, the the feeling of the individual and the interaction with the text changes. So things that were not, oh, I don't know, twenty years ago, maybe are, I don't know now because mm -hmm. of the, the the different societies you live in or the the, the world view has shifted. Mm -hmm. So is there a risk to that? You know. Absolutely. That's why I said you don't reject it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't say no. The prophet could never say that. It's like, you know, sometimes our our reactions are more extreme than they need to be. You know, You're like I, I just don't know about this. I don't feel comfortable with it. Sometimes there's things that we don't feel comfortable with them, and then with time, we kind of like they make more sense to us. Like the one that I just mentioned about 
people have their status. You know, when I first heard that thing, I was like about to lose my mind with my socialist new Muslim understanding. And over time, I was kind of like, okay, I get it. Like, you know, it just feels, you know, still a little bit different for me, but like, uh, I don't, you know, believe that it's not true. Um, and there's many, many cases like that. Right. So we we do have to, and part of that's also like our own self, our own introspection. That that's why these methodologies are not, and that's why methodology is so important. It's not it's not contingent upon a person and their feelings. This it's about a methodology that's applied over generations and generations and generations. And that's why I would have some pause that even if I thought it was kind of like hmm, like well, if all those generations of people didn't have an issue with it, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm not. If it's not a central issue of the religion, like in the end, we're gonna find out. <laughs> you know, but you can have a Khalid Abu Fadl. He calls it a conscientious pause. Conscientious pause. You just be like, hmm. but it is a little bit of a slippery slope. So you have to be careful with it. Yes, that's not. You know that hadith where uh, it says like, if you guys like don't do one tenth of your religion, it's like you failed, and then mm. there come a time. When mm. they even do one ten, mm. and the original collector of that he, he rejected it. Mm. Like the chain was good, he said, mm. "I can't accept this." Mm. Like, and I just think it's funny because because we read it and we're like, "Yeah, that makes sense." Makes perfect <laughs> sense, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> you hear what he said. There's a hadith that says like, oh, "Say it again." When there, if you so don't do one tenth of your religion, you're basically rejecting all of it. And there will come a time when you do, if you do one tenth of it, then you've done a lot. And he was saying that the original narrator of the hadith rejected it, even though it was sound. He was like, "This doesn't make any sense," you know. <laughs> but now we hear it, and we're like, "Oh yeah, that makes perfect sense," you know. Um, Subhanallah. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a lot of anyone who goes on like a serious intellectual journey knows that this is just the reality of it. There will be things that at one point they don't really sit well with you, and then later on they make more sense. It's just the way that it goes, and so. But there are, of course. I mean, especially you know. Our, our problems also are not always necessarily with the narration, they're with the abuse of the narration. Mm -hmm. That's usually my experience as well. That it's, it's not like, the narration you could probably find like some way to understand it in a different way. But it's been misused on you so many times that it's really hard to do that now. And that's, that's its own issue. That's not necessarily an intellectual issue now. It's, it's like also a spiritual issue and psychological issue and a lot of other things. find very commonly amongst uh, cultural um, I, I mean you also f I think it's also very common to find a whole lot of narrations that are just not true 
that are just a huge part of people's arsenal of how they understand their religion, how they employ it in their daily life, and they're just not actually correct narrations in the first place. And that was one of the biggest issues that I went through when I first became a Muslim, was because everyone's telling you about the prophets I send them, and nobody's caring anything about hadith criticism. <laughs> it's just like whatever my grandma told me at bedtime, I'm going to tell this guy who just became a Muslim, you know? And it's like, I, do you, did you think about that before you did it, you know? So I, there was like a stage of life where basically, you know, f for all intensive purposes, I, I reboot my hard drive, you know, like you reformat it. So you have a hard drive of how you think about the world and everything else, and you're like, okay, Ashhadu an la ilaha Muhammad Rasulullah, reformat, things erasing. And you start to meet the Muslims and stuff, and then this person tells you a hadith, and this one tells you a hadith, and this one tells you a hadith, this one tells you a hadith, this one tells you read this, this one tells you read that, so on and so you're reading all of this crazy stuff. And then at some point you realize there's such thing as an authentic hadith and a not authentic hadith. So it's like, reformat. <laughs> like, what are you going to do? You, can't, you don't know what's what. So you have to start over all again. Like, I, I can't figure out what's what. I have no way to figure it out. So the only thing to do is start over. So then I like, can't re reformat, start over, you know. Then we went to Egypt and we actually started to study. I was like, okay, we need to do that one again. <laughs> reformat again. Uh, like how many reformats are you, you know, eventually? You have to like clean up the, you know when you have all that space on the hard drive that's cluttered and like <laughs> needs to be decluttered? You can reformat and reformat and reformat, but there's all this clutter. So... <coughs> I don't know why I'm saying that. Point is, there's weak narrative. Sometimes, culturally speaking, people have ideas and they think religion is one thing, and you ask them why, and all they can give you are narrations that have no bearing. I'm not even talking about weak. Like, after weak, there's fabricated. Okay, like, weak is its own category. Weak, actually, in many, there's like 30 different, 30 ish different categories of weak hadith, of varying levels of weakness. And, you know, some of those levels of weakness are such that you can, like, legitimately think that maybe the Prophet actually did say this. Maybe we can still benefit from this, which is the majority position of scholarship, um, if it, you know, with certain conditions. And some things are really weak, and some things are just straight up fabricated. Like, we have no reason to believe that the Prophet said this. So, in the cases where the hadith has been proven to be fabricated, why weren't those texts taken out of the, the books? They're not in there. <laughs> they're not in like the major. They're so there's many different types of hadith books, and many of them they're written for different reasons, right? And the assumption is that if someone's going to go to this book, they know how to deal with it, right? And uh, unfortunately, you know, eventually that wasn't the case. But if you go to like the major books of hadith, the major six or or seven or whatever, you know, however you're going to break it down, you're not really going to find fabricated hadith. There might be like a handful, I'm not entirely sure, but for the most part they're not there. And it's going to be said in the book itself. And most, like Bukhari and Muslim were clear. They don't put it in unless they think it's sahih. Abu Dawood, he has his own methodology. If he stays quiet after he narrates it, if he comments, if he doesn't comment, that indicates the acceptability of it. Tirmidhi does the same, even though in the translation sometimes they cut it out. I don't know. Someone makes sense of this for me. Tirmidhi tells you what his opinion is on the hadith, whether or not it's reliable, and the translator takes it out. But, but he tells you, like, he gives examples of, like, weak hadith on purpose. Yeah. So why would you take that out? 
they'll take out even what he says. Like he might say it's Hassan, and they'll take that out. I mean, I, it doesn't make any sense to me. But I'm not the translator. Allahu Adam. Why people do the things that they do. Um, but <coughs> you know, those are there. But then there's other collections. Cases where there are collections of less, you know, uh, authentic. Why are they still there? Why hasn't there been an effort to take them out of even those books? Because then someone will come and say that this is hadith. And you say, you know, generally speaking, in, in Muslim history, they kept things. It's like it's like archiving, and we're going to keep all kinds of things, and we're going to tell you how to deal with it. We're going to tell you how to figure out how to deal with it so that, you know, anything that comes later on, you can find it traced wherever you need to trace it and so on. But like I said, in the main books of hadith, you're not going to find them. And then you'll also, on top of it, find works that are dedicated only to narrating fabricated hadith. Like this is the book of fabricated hadith. And you can't even call them hadith, but fabrications attributed to the Prophet them, so that you know them. Or there'll be books on like hadith that are commonly said by people but actually what are are they reliable or are they not there's like you know a shahir um, but they would keep these things out of like uh, academic integrity you know out of like just the archiving process um, and, uh, and many of them were taken out right also like many of these things were taken out I'm not you know it would be interesting to ask a hadith specialist about that but um like Bukhari and his 7,000 authentic hadith, those aren't the only authentic hadith he had. Even on the authentic side, forget like the... But he said, these ones, they're sufficient and they cover everything and they're the most reliable. And this for this book, this is what's going to go there. And other books, he might have other things. So, it's a, hadith is like a... It's so vast. I almost went into the college of hadith. And then I realized I'd probably go crazy. I, fi I, I figured Sharia would be more uh, like applicable to the realities of American Muslims and like super detailed hadith studies, you know. Um, although it would have been fun. One of our contemporaries did that. Uh, Ali Godel, he teaches now in Chicago. He And he's really, really sharp, mashallah. Um... Uh, I'm going to read a couple paragraphs and then we're going to stop just to give it like a good stopping point uh, nevertheless these secondary beliefs and practices are of vital importance in Islam and are not to be regarded as tentative or untrue although they belong to the realm of formal dissent and cannot be imposed on others they constitute valid beliefs and practices for those schools and the individuals who accept them one of the principles of like this difference of opinion is that when there's a difference of opinion, you can't force one on people. It's a very, very important principle. Also, one of them that's like, I mean, you, you, if you've been a student of Islamic studies for like three days, you probably find out this principle, but somehow it gets neglected also on a communal level. Now, if there's a difference of opinion on an issue, you can't force your opinion on someone else. So that's simple. So we have to know where they, where they are. Uh, in essence, each school of Islamic law constitutes a working methodology for reaching valid conclusions about presumptive, presumptively authoritative questions. 
The schools agree on categorically authoritative matters. Their differences concern presumptively authoritative ones. Although each school claims to be a reliable guide in presumptive, presumptive matters, they acknowledge the rights of others to dissent and do not claim conclusive authority for themselves in the absence of categorical proof. So basically, the schools are methods for dealing with those things that are not absolutely clear. On the things that are absolutely clear, everyone already agrees on them. And if it's something that's not absolutely clear, they have their position and they use the methodology to arrive to it and they believe that it's sound, but they can't reject someone else's. So this is why you have all these statements from the imams along those regards. You know, Imam al-Shafi would say, my opinion's right and it's possible that it's wrong. You know, Abu Hanifa would say similar things. All of them would say these things. One of the most important principles in the definition of Islamic orthodoxy Heresy and sectarianism relates to this distinction between categorically authoritative primary and presumptively authoritative secondary beliefs and practices. As indicated above, the foundational content of Islam, which all Muslims are required to acknowledge, must be restricted to primary beliefs and practices based on categorically authoritative proof. So if you're going to say this is something that every single Muslim has to believe and everyone has to follow it, then it has to be categorical. While it is valid for persons and schools to adopt presumptively authoritative elements of faith for themselves, it is not permissible to regard them as obligatory for the Muslim community as a whole. To do so is heretical and sectarian. To do so is heretical and sectarian. This is, one of the, this is what heretical groups do. They take something that is supposed to be agreed upon, I mean supposed to be debated upon, and you cannot categorically say that it's true, and they make it something that's categorical. Maybe we see this over and over and over again. And then they say everyone else is wrong and this and that. And it is equally unacceptable by the standards of orthodoxy to insist that Muslims renounce their dissenting secondary beliefs and practices simply because other Muslims may regard them to be false. You know, it's also a problem like you can't just tell them to give it up. That's why every time Ustad Fuad leads Salat here and he says Salam on both sides, I turn around and I tell everyone he's only saying Salam on both sides out of respect for you because he doesn't want to make you go crazy. But it's not his position because he's a Maliki and the Maliki school says salam to one side. That's it. They just say assalamu alaikum and it's done. But so many Muslims aren't used to it that like if you do it, Dr. Jackson has a story like that. that Sheikh Ali Suleiman was out of town and he called Dr. Jackson because they were living in the same community and asked him like, can you lead Jumar or something like that? And he's like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, Dr. Jackson's strict Maliki. You know, he's going to pray in the Maliki way. He studied with some of the top scholars of Egypt and, and the school back in the day. Um, and so he's like, yeah. So he went and he led the thing and he made the one salam and everyone lost their mind. You know, <laughs> like he had his hands at his side during salat and he made one salam and everyone was like, this guy's making up a new religion. And, you know, like, this is, he's like, I told you. <laughs> what are you going to do? That's so that's, but that's, Renouncing, this is what we do, right? We see something that we haven't seen before and we make it seem like it's just, there's no, okay, let's find out. Maybe there is no basis for it. It's possible, but maybe there is. By defining orthodoxy in this manner, the dichotomy between categorically authoritative and presumptively authoritative proof provides a protected space for intra-Muslim dissent and discourse. So recognizing that interplay creates a protected space for intra-Muslim discourse. It establishes freedom of dissent as an intrinsic and necessary religious right and relegates Muslims who deny that right to the marginal status of heretics and sectarians. If you don't want to accept it, you're on the outside. You're the one who's on the outside, not someone else. 
Although the protocol of Islamic thought agrees to disagree on presumptively authoritative matters, it should be emphasized that dissenting views must be held to high standards and sound methodologies. This is also really important now. They are not worthy of respect merely because they constitute dissent. Respecting dissent does not imply honoring weak and arbitrary arguments or those founded on ignorance of the Islamic sciences. Respecting dissent means rejecting authoritarianism. It does not mean rejecting authority. It's a really important sentence. Respecting dissent means rejecting authoritarianism. It does not mean rejecting authority. Non-categorical proofs must be as authoritative as possible. They require reasonable evidence, sound methodology, and cogent reasoning. So we can stop here, inshallah, where he says, In what follows, I will give a few illustrations of presumptively authoritative text and legal interpretations. Okay, so we can, we'll continue from there next time. Any questions, anything? Only 400? No. You know, what I was just, like, dissecting in my head, you started with all of our relationship with our faith is through texts and how we engage with the text. So, like, this, you know, this idea that, like, me here in Orange County, California, I'm going to pick up a text and read it. And you said, you know, the beauty of Islam is every time you pick up a text, it, it speaks to you and your situation and what you're experiencing so me opening up the quran or a book of hadith versus somebody right now living in a refugee camp in the middle of syria or somebody in afghanistan or somebody in the middle of africa so it's just it's always i've always struggled with that except for the scholars who know how to dissect and contextualize that's where all of the interpretations of my worldview my experience my feeling if i don't have a sheikh that i'm studying with can you know guide me incorrectly? Mm -hmm. It's the same text, mm -hmm. but five different people in five different situations, mm -hmm. uh, coming from a different world worldview, different life experiences. Yeah. Um, so that's where I feel like you know we need to go back to the traditional model of just learning from a sheikh somewhere mm -hmm. that has that broad knowledge. Mm -hmm. You know, because I just feel like can we trust ourselves? That's yeah. my issue with. It's an excellent question. No, we can't. For the most part, on many issues, we yeah. cannot. But, which ties in other aspects, right? So, like, the foundation of our religion is those texts. But, for the people who lived with the Prophet, like, those texts build upon each other over generations. So, in the time of the Prophet, their religion was built on the text of the Quran, but it was on the not yet written and lived text of the Prophet So he was the text And so they understand exactly what everything means in the right place From him And then the next generation is going to take all of that knowledge And figure out how to put it in the right place Based on the example of those who came before them Who were the companions of the Prophet And then so on and so on and so on and so on So there's always the lived element of like the base of the scholarship is in the text but the scholarship has to be lived and and that's an interplay between that helps us to understand and it's not always going to the, the as i mentioned before the the soundness and correct correct practice of the religion is not going to be preserved necessarily in like one person but it's in a body of people Engaging that body of text and the lived reality of the consequences of those texts, and in with integrity, 
over periods of time, right? So should we just be picking up texts and reading them and coming to our own conclusions? Absolutely not. <laughs> we should be spending time with people who have spent time with people who have spent time with people who studied the religion and understood what it's supposed to be all the way back to the Prophet them and learning those methodologies by which we understand the text. And people realize that, that like the more you live, the more you learn, the more you spend time around people of knowledge, the more you get a feel for what you can and can't take from a text and the limits of that and the things that you should be engaging with and the things that you kind of be like, okay, well, this one is a little bit beyond my reach. But actually, I was listening to um, Stuth Fouad's class this morning. Um, I, was listen I listened to his first one. And one of the things that I heard him mention, I think that was in the first one, listen to part of the second one too, was uh, this quote of Imam al-Razi about the different levels of verses in the Quran and how some of them, like only Allah knows what they mean and some of them only the scholars know what they mean, only the prophets know what they mean and some of them only the scholars know what they mean and some of them everyone knows what they mean. And there's texts like that. There's texts like, I don't need a whole lot of interpretation when the Prophet them says that fear Allah wherever you are and uh, follow a bad deed with a good one and treat people with good character. I don't need like a whole lot of interpretive method there, you know. Um, but other things I might, you know, like when is someone apostated? <laughs> I mean, like that's a bigger question, you know. So I, I think that as the, you know, we want to learn and get a feel for those methodologies and where the limits are for ourselves. And at the same time, Part of why that's important is because e every Muslim needs a relationship with the primary text. Like, yeah, we need scholars, but we also need to read the Qur'an. We need to read the Hadith. We need to have a relationship with them. That's why we, before Islamic manners, we were reading Hadith. Most of those Hadith, they didn't need like a whole lot of commentary. right? They, some of them needed it, some of them didn't. But, you know, this, so we have to figure that out. There's different kinds of texts. So what the next 399 <laughs> <Okay>. questions? <laughs> I know there's a lot more. It's fine. It just you know leads to a lot of areas because we look at where like you at, we were talking about the fabrication. Who made those hadiths? First of all, who fabricated them? For what purposes? Mm. Fabricators. I know he, he was <laughs> yeah, asking. Fabricators like, did yeah. Yeah, he was asking why why did they live on? Well, obviously it served a purpose for some society or some political movement or some like you know we look at yeah the, you know fabrication yeah. really starts with the, with the political conflicts yeah so there are s there are reasons and now looking at the time we're living in in this postmodern world i feel like we're trying to modernize things that we don't understand or don't match the societies we are living in and that's a risk for like just personally for me i'm i'm looking you know how you said there's a big body of us trying to just if you look at the American Western Muslims mm -hmm. trying to, you know, stay engaged with their faith, but also like the world is moving so quickly by the second that there could be a feeling for our kids that oh, there's like a conflict or it doesn't mm -hmm. match anymore. Mm -hmm. And how do we hold on to mm -hmm. these values that mm -hmm. may not match right now because of where the world is moving? Right. So like making it relevant, but keeping it succinct and true. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Well, that's all in the methodologies, because the methodologies are going to tell you what can you question, what can you not, what are the limits on how far you push things, and what are the limits on how far you don't push things, which things are categorical, which things are not. Um, you know, all all of that stuff is going to be in in those methods. 
But I think that also from the lecture that I heard from Ustad Fuad, that part of that was uh, a, a lot of that is just like if the foundation is broken, everything, no matter how hard you try, everything else is going to be broken. So at, at its base level, on a base theological level, if the Muslim doesn't believe that God is right and the Prophet them is right, like everything else doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just everything else is. You can you can make everything into social justice Islam, or you can make everything into like this sophisticated cultured Islam, or whatever you want to try to make it into. But it's just not going to be coherent in the end because that's not that's not a coherent methodology. That's just your whims. You're doing this or that. Um, so we have to like at the base believe that this is true and this is our religion, and then we can begin to engage with questions. You know, there's certain things that they're not going to change. You know, it's like we we have some of them right now that are really tough, especially on gender related things, and the live stream is still going, so we have to be careful, you know. But on these gender related things, it's crazy. Trying to reconnect. Yeah, it's alhamdulillah, it's, it's connection <laughs> broke. <laughs> Maybe that's a metaphor. We're, we're trying to reconnect also, so that we don't just flounder all over the place. Yeah. I think a lot of people have used like that aren't like authoritative yeah. on us all the time. Yeah. And I think that it's made us like very wary and, mm-hmm. and more suspicious than we have to be. Mm-hmm. Especially like some of the gender hadiths. Yeah. I'm like, dude, they, the context of these hadiths are not even close to how you're using Yeah, yeah. Like, it's very true. And if yeah. I didn't know, like I would not know that. Yeah. That's the thing is you're getting it on both sides, right? You're getting it on like the religious quote unquote side. You're getting it on the secular side. You're getting hit from everywhere saying that what you're what you're doing is not really gonna work. And uh Alhamdulillah we have, you know, Assalamu One of the blessings of being where we are is that we have the space to engage with all of that. Because we're not dominated by a particular cultural understanding that makes it so that you can't even have a conversation on any of these things, right? We're just not So we have to figure it out And uh, Alhamdulillah You know Good things are happening I think Hopefully they'll happen fast enough (laughs) But (laughs) But There's a lot of good people Doing good work And thinking about this stuff Yeah Um, You mentioned earlier That if there's a hadith That we don't We just can't get ourselves To agree with And it's a hadith That's not You know Sahih Um, So For us as individuals You know Especially Mm-hmm. You're in a 
you end up getting sidelined or just kind of pushed away. Mm-hmm. How do you protect yourself from, I guess, individuals who kind of force their opinion on you? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you reconcile that as someone who wants to learn Islam again and who wants to be, you know, engaged but kind of feel hesitant because of this, like the communities that they've seen mm-hmm. shame other individuals for mm-hmm. not following a certain kind of lifestyle. I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah. It's a great question. Again, one of the benefits of living here and being in an extremely individualistic society is that if you don't want to be around certain people, you just don't get around them anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like like in, in in like back home civilizations and stuff, like there's a lot of people you don't want to engage with them and you just have to engage with them. You know, here there's a lot of people you can just be like, all right, your whole thing, that's not working for me. And I need some space from you. <laughs> Sometimes they're family members, and you know you have to deal with them. But you yeah, know. how do you deal with family members like that? Then you have to do the same thing in your head. <laughs> but how do you do it in, in terms of? Um, I guess, like I, I personally just never realized. I feel like some people kind of don't have it in their head that it's okay to have a difference of opinion. Mm-hmm. Because you come across a lot of different types of. Muslims, you know, and it's okay as long as, of course, you know, they're respecting, I guess, like the core um, pillars of Islam. But you have difference of opinions, even in the schools of thought, like I'm Hanafi, but, you know, you come across who's not Hanafi and you're like, oh, I've never heard of that. Is that even true? Mm-hmm. They don't even know. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's kind of like, like, well, that's for you to figure out. That's the etiquette, I guess. Yeah. I mean,. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad I think, you know, knowledge is liberation in a sense Because No matter how hard it is to deal with some people sometimes And, you know, depending on your position and stuff It can be a lot more complicated But knowledge is liberating in a sense Because it's just, you know People are going to get upset about what you're like I know what I know On principle like uh, you just took whatever you took from wherever and I actually learned this you know what I mean like uh, I remember one time I was going to again one of those things that kind of like struck me as strange initially but the more I think about it the more I agree with it was I was going to uh, Eid prayer a couple years ago with Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah and I asked him like how are you going to lead Eid you know like how are you going to do it? Because the Malikis do it one way, and the Shafi'is do it one way, and the Hanafis do it one way. And he just looked at me, he's like, what do you mean? Like, what, what are you saying? <laughs> I was like, how are you going to do it? And he's like, I'm going to do it the Maliki way, because I'm Maliki, and it's their job to follow the Imam. <laughs> like, I'm not, like, what do you mean? And initially I was like, whoa. Like, I know an Imam in Southern California that literally, basically, that's one of the reasons he lost his job was that he tried to do Eid in a way that the community wasn't accustomed to and everyone lost their mind about it. Um, so, but, like, in the end, that's what I'm saying. When, you, when you're when you in, like, a position like that, it's much harder. Like, you're, you're an imam, and you know something is totally acceptable, and the people aren't going to accept it. You know, maybe, like, for example, your wife is giving lectures in the prayer hall, and mm-hmm. people are petitioning the board that it shouldn't happen, you know? Hypothetical situation, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know these things. It, it gets really frustrating. 
but like this is that's what this is basic he's giving us basic operational principles for how we're going to function with our religion and the world we live in principle number two is you have to respect dissent like if you're and and if you don't you're actually heterodox that's what, you're a heretic i'm not the heretic you're the heretic if you don't want to accept that there's difference of opinion on things. you know i mean it's not and that's the th you know like one of them that he's going to come to too is setting priorities that there's priorities like not every conversation needs to be on really really detailed things not everything i don't have to we don't have to address everything on day one like the prophet them didn't even aisha radiallahu she has that narration where she says that had had the prohibition of uh, alcohol and i think zina been on day one like nobody would have become a muslim came much later you know, <laughs> came came after iman and after the day of judgment and after all of this stuff. They're like, okay, now we can. We're ready to accept it. You know, we have issues with these things, but I mean, as bad as it is here, I mean, I remember it's worse in other places. When I came out of yeah. Afghanistan and the first time I prayed next to an Egyptian, I mean, I was almost went crazy. I was like, what yeah. did you just do? Yeah. The way they were standing, the way they were raising their hands, mm -hmm. they were going up mm -hmm. and down. I, I I remember one time praying next to my father-in-law and lifting my finger, like moving it or something. When I first learned how to pray, I was told that you do this whole thing. And we, I was praying next to my father-in-law and I was doing it. And then afterwards he told me, he's like, you know, if we were in Afghanistan, Afghanistan, <laughs> like every sentence starts with Afghanistan, right? Like in Afghanistan, it would be like this. It's like, he's like, in Afghanistan, if you did that, they would literally reach over and break your finger in the middle of Salah. Yeah, yeah. Like, they, they would reach over, grab your finger, and break it. People don't know. Like, that's all they've seen. You know, and that's why I'm a little bit biased, definitely, because of my experience in Cairo. Because, yeah, you have a lot of, like, craziness in Cairo and extreme, you know, people do whatever. People are still people. But in the end, you have an institution that's been there for a thousand years that tells people that four madhabs are sound and all of them are correct. And you turn on the radio every single day and there will be a question and it will say, this school says this and this school says this and there's three opinions. And like everyone's hearing that for their whole life, you know, and you're seeing it because not everyone even follows the same madhab in Cairo. It's not like some of these places, you know. So I mean, we were also told the same way when we were learning back home. But never saw it. Is one thing, but when you're faced with the reality of someone praying for the first time, you see yeah. he's coming yeah. up to Buku and he's actually raising yeah. his hands. Yeah. It's very difficult yeah. to accept yeah. that. Can't help it. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's true. Yeah. But well, see, that's that's the thing. Like when you learn when you learn your madhab, right? Like say you're going to study fiqh and you learn your madhab. What what you're told is this is your madhab. Like this is a madhab. There's other opinions. You're studying this so that you know what you know that what you're doing is sound. Mm -hmm. It's not for you to judge everyone else. Yeah. The point of it is for you to know that your basic worship and your relationship with God it's sound. Everyone else, then you have to study comparative fit. It's not that's that's different stage. You know, but we, you know, people love the deen. They love Allah. They love the Prophet's eyes on them. Sometimes it's misplaced. I was thinking about making a post about that, but I was convinced not to. Which is basically that, you know, sometimes when I'm doing something, my son wants to help. So he's like, you know, Daddy Cat. It's never Baba. I don't know how I got Daddy Cat. But Daddy Cat, can I help you? And I'm like, sure. And then, of course, you know, what is he going to do? He's going to proceed to do whatever he wants. 
And I'm like, you're not helping if you don't do what I tell you to do, right? <laughs> I'm like, I want to make a post that basically says that and tells people, don't be the adult equivalent of that five-year-old. You know, we're like, you, I just want to help. Just wanting to help is not sufficient. <laughs> you need to know what you're doing, right? Everyone just wants to help. I just want to help with this, I don't want to help with that. But like, know what you're doing. Is it correct? Does it sound? I just love Allah and His Messenger. Okay, well then like, love them enough not to ruin other people's relationship with Allah and His Messenger. If that's, if that's how much you love them, then love them enough to like, learn things properly. And, and to be fair, a lot of the blame is not on the regular people who are really... Uh, passionate about these things. A lot of the blame is on the people who teach them. That reminds me of a story yeah. that my, my dad had when he was in Amiyasin growing up, is that he was like, you never really see youth at the mosques. Mm. They weren't invited. Mm. It's because it was always the elders and that they, they thought they were right mm. that and that youth weren't, I guess, they're wrong because they're young, mm. and I guess young and dumb, so mm. they just were never invited, so they never really you know, my dad said it was. It wasn't until much later that I actually on my own studied Islam because I mm-hmm. just wasn't. There mm-hmm. wasn't a place mm-hmm. for people to learn. Yeah, some of these cultural things are not good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. definitely no women. In the oh, yeah. definitely no women. Yeah, forget it. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of issues. Alhamdulillah that we're we're here and we have the space to engage with these things, and we have actually like the environment that we're in forces us to engage in a very critical and thorough way. Right, like we can't just do a half-hearted assessment of our religion. We have to like really know our religion inside and out if we're gonna be able to deal with these things. Which raises another issue that I was thinking of when you were saying what you're saying is that, you know, historically they would say, for example, like, what is an individual obligation and what is a communal obligation? And the individual obligations are very small. Like, you know, you have your basic aqidah, you know who God is. You know that like everything that's created needs a creator, so there must be God, and like that's sufficient for you. You know how to pray, you know, whatever. And th- they basically leave it at that. But I think that in our context, uh, there's a lot more things that become... And then they would say, like, and whatever knowledge they need in order to get by, then becomes individual obligation. Individual obligations for us in the West are much higher. You know, like this class that Ustad Fuad is teaching, I don't see how someone can go through college, they can grow up here, they can go through a serious education, go through college, become a working professional, and not study something like that, and still be sound in their religion. Like, you just have too many questions, too many attacks, too many things that are saying that what you believe is backwards and it doesn't make any sense, and why do you guys believe what you believe, and so on and so forth, that like, you have to, now the individual obligation for the study of aqidah is no longer at like the basic, basic level. It's actually at the next level up. Same thing with like hadith. In the past, like whatever, you know, you didn't really need to know hadith sciences. I think that now for like the basic educated person that's going to be exposed to all these ideas and stuff, they need to know actually the basic hadith sciences. They need to know like what are the categorizations of hadith and why, at least that much. To be able to say like, okay, what is sahih and what is hasan and what is da'if and why and what does that mean to me? It's very basic. It's not super complicated, but like to not know that now is a lot more dangerous than not knowing it before. You know, so there's a lot of things that you know things have become more complicated in that regard. But that's true for everything. There's a lot more knowledge that's required in everything now than there used to be in the past. 
you guys feel like <laughs> some people you're not prisoners I tell you every time when you want to leave leave have a good time go home it's fine it's no big deal we're just continuing yes don't feel guilty if you need to go go I was thinking, you know, as the, gener- the younger generations growing up here, and then hearing or seeing those familial or cultural, I mean, do we have to, as, a, as we are learning in our growth, you know, as stubborn or as stuck as they are, do we have to engage to change their minds? I don't feel like that obligation is on me. Like mm-hmm. I feel like, okay, you know, it's very hard to take people who for 50, 60 years were raised in systems and societies and modify them. And I think that this next generation needs to, needs to not be that sensitive to, you know, my, my faith and my devotion can't rely on a representation of their practices. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the rising of the youth mm-hmm. and the, the questioning of everything, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, you may not have the same view or the... But but you know they're Muslim, they're elderly. This is how they practice. This is how they are. Do we really have to? Because if you go back to the, are we supposed to engage and just dis- disagree? Okay, they're going to disagree with us. Should we? I mean, I look to each person in our lives, and we're like, okay, what kind of conversations can I have mm. with this person? Mm. Maybe, maybe I'm not going to change mm. their beliefs that their mother is the only right one. Mm-hmm. But this next generation. It's a horrible belief. Like it's incredible how yeah, horrible that belief is. So it's hard, but I think changing them is harder than just changing ourselves and our engagement yeah and just from a place of compassion that this is how they were this is how it was for so many years and family through family you know that change is much harder than trying to revitalize our change and how we relate with them and it, i don't think it gets in the way of our connection to god you know mm-hmm. what i mean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i don't know if that is yeah. that something because I mean, is it related struggle, to that struggle of That's young right. people all the time. Because just the other day, my, my mom. Can like you like end the video?